The monotonous clicking of my keyboard is the only sound in the late hours at the office. Lines of code swim before my eyes, demanding my full concentration. That's when my phone buzzes with a news alert, slicing through the silence and my focus. A man in Tokyo disappears in thin air, the headline screams. Curiosity peaked. I click on the link, and a video starts playing. It shows a bustling Tokyo street, people milling about in their daily rush. The timestamp in the corner of the video reads just past noon. A man in a business suit carrying a briefcase walks confidently towards the camera. Then in a blink, he's gone. One frame he's there, the next he isn't. The people around him stop, look around in confusion, but there's no sign of him. I lean back in my chair, staring at the screen. The logical part of my brain suggests a digital glitch. A video edit, perhaps. But something about the way the others on the street react, their genuine confusion and alarm, makes me doubt that explanation. I replay the video, looking for any clue I might have missed. But it's just as the news reported. A man walking one second, and then simply not there the next. Must be a new viral marketing tactic, I mutter to myself, trying to brush off the unpleasant feeling settling in my gut. I turn back to my work, forcing myself to focus on the logic of code rather than the mystery of the man's disappearance. But as I return to my work, a part of my mind remains snagged on that image. A busy street in Tokyo, a man walking, and then nothing. Just empty space where he used to be. It's bizarre, inexplicable, and despite my best efforts, I find myself revisiting the video over and over again in my mind, looking for an answer I know I won't find. Days after the Tokyo incident, my morning routine becomes a surreal experience. Each day I brace myself for the news, and each day it delivers a fresh dose of chaos. Reports start flooding in from all corners of the globe showing the same pattern. People just like the man in Tokyo start disappearing in broad daylight, vanishing without a trace in front of bewildered witnesses. In New York, a woman disappears while crossing a busy street, her coffee cup shattering on the ground as she evaporates into thin air. In London, a teenager on his way to school is seen one moment and the next, he's gone, his backpack left floating to the ground. From Paris to Sydney, Johannesburg to Moscow. The incidents grow in number, each as baffling and unexplainable as the last. I find myself glued to the TV screen, watching news anchors who once conveyed stories with poised confidence, now grappling with the growing panic. Their faces betray fear and confusion as they report each new disappearance. The usual calm and rehearsed tones are replaced by shaky voices and visible stress. Experts are brought in, offering theories that range from the plausible to the absurd. Mass hallucinations, secret government experiments, even rapture-like events. But none of them can provide a satisfactory explanation. The frenzy isn't just limited to the news. Social media explodes with theories and speculations. Hashtags like Vanishing Act and no, you see them flood my feeds, each post a blend of fear, intrigue and wild conspiracy theories. People start sharing tips on how to stay safe, though no one knows if any of it is effective. Some talk about avoiding crowded places, 
Others suggest never going out alone. But the randomness of the disappearances makes every suggestion seem futile. In coffee shops, on public transport, in the office, the topic is inescapable. Conversations are dominated by the latest disappearance or the newest theory. Even the skeptics, who initially laughed off the incidents, start to express their concerns. Sitting in my office, I overhear my colleagues sharing their own theories and fears. Did you hear about the man in Berlin? One asks. Vanished right in the middle of a conference call. Another replies with a shudder. I try to focus on my work, but the atmosphere of unease is a constant distraction. As night falls, the city that never sleeps seems to hold its breath. The vibrant energy that once defined it is replaced by a nervous, wary pulse. I look out of my window at the quiet streets, wondering when, or if, normalcy will ever return. With each new report of a disappearance, the world grows more frantic, more afraid, and deep down, I can't help but feel the same way. The clock ticks past midnight as I finally log off my computer. The office is silent. The only sound is the low hum of electronics and the distant echo of a night guard's footsteps. I gather my things and step into the cool night air. The streets, usually bustling with life at all hours, are desolate. A consequence of the fear gripping the city, I suppose. As I walk... The unsettling silence amplifies every sound. My footsteps on the pavement, the distant bark of a dog, the rustle of leaves in the gentle night breeze. I quicken my pace, eager to get home, when something in the sky catches my attention. At first I think it's a trick of the light or perhaps a reflection from a street lamp. But as I focus, I see it clearly, a dark, hovering object silent and motionless against the starry backdrop. It's unlike any drone or aircraft I've ever seen. Its edges are too smooth, too perfectly curved, and there's an unnerving precision in its stillness. My heart starts to race, pounding loud in my ears. I'm rooted to the spot, my eyes fixed on this inexplicable apparition. Questions race through my mind. Is this what's been causing the disappearances? Is it observing us? Studying us? Just as suddenly as it appeared, the object flickers, a brief, almost imperceptible shudder. And then it's gone, vanishing without a trace into the night sky. I blink hard, half expecting it to reappear, but the sky remains empty. For a long moment, I stand there, trying to process what I've just seen. My rational mind struggles to find a logical explanation but comes up short. The silence around me feels heavier now, filled with unspoken fears and unanswered questions. Shaken, I resume my walk home, but the encounter lingers in my mind. I replay the sight over and over, each time asking myself if what I saw was real. Was it a figment of my imagination, fueled by the stress and the stories of disappearances? Or had I just come face to face with the unknown force behind this global mystery? By the time I reach my apartment, the encounter has transformed from a moment of fear to a puzzle that I'm determined to solve. I know what I saw and I can't just dismiss it. This strange hovering object in the sky could be the key to understanding what's happening around the world. After weeks of escalating panic and unanswered questions, 
the government finally steps into the spotlight to address the issue. The press conference is broadcast live, cutting into regular programming. I watch from my living room, skepticism and hope battling within me. The room is packed with reporters, their faces a mosaic of concern and anticipation. The president stands at the podium, flanked by high-ranking officials from various departments, including defense and homeland security. The president begins by acknowledging the global scale of the disappearances, emphasizing the government's commitment to finding answers. But as the speech progresses, it becomes increasingly evident that those answers are in short supply. The president mentions the possibility of sophisticated terrorist threats, suggesting that the disappearances might be the result of an unprecedented form of terrorism. I lean forward, scrutinizing the president's demeanor. There's a noticeable tension, a carefully maintained composure. It's clear they're holding back, their words measured, giving away as little as possible. Beside the president, the defense secretary shifts uncomfortably, his eyes scanning the room, avoiding direct contact with the cameras. Questions from the press start flying, demanding specifics, but the answers remain vague and evasive. One reporter asks directly about the possibility of extraterrestrial involvement, referencing the numerous eyewitness accounts of strange aerial phenomena. The room falls into a brief, charged silence before the president dismisses these claims as speculative and unhelpful. The evasion is telling. Rumors had been circulating on the internet about alien abductions fueled by eyewitness accounts and blurry photos of unidentified flying objects. But to hear it mentioned in such a formal setting adds a new weight to the theory. The government's reluctance to engage with the idea, their tight-lipped responses, only served to fuel the speculation. As the press conference concludes, the president reiterates a commitment to transparency and public safety, but offers no concrete plan or reassurance. The camera pans over the room, capturing the unease and dissatisfaction of the reporters. The broadcast ends, and I'm left sitting there, feeling more unsettled than ever. The government's response, or lack thereof, paints a clear picture. They're as in the dark as we are. The threat, whatever it is, remains as elusive and terrifying as ever. I switch off the TV, my mind racing with the impact of what I've just witnessed. The idea of alien abductions, once the stuff of science fiction and conspiracy theories, now seems disturbingly plausible. And with the government seemingly powerless to stop it, the future feels more uncertain than ever. The next day I get a frantic phone call from my friend's sister, Emily. Sarah didn't come home last night. Emily's voice cracks with fear, her words tumbling out in a hurried panic. The dread that had been simmering in the back of my mind since the first disappearance report suddenly surges to the forefront. I had spoken to Sarah just a couple of days ago. Her voice had been tinged with the same unease that had gripped us all. But there was an additional layer of fear that I hadn't heard in her before. It feels like we're all just waiting to vanish, she had said, half joking, but her laughter didn't reach her eyes. Now, as I sit numbly processing the news of her disappearance, that conversation echoes hauntingly in my ears. The notion of people vanishing had been a distant, 
albeit frightening, reality. But with Sarah's disappearance, it becomes deeply personal, a sharp, painful thrust that makes the situation agonizingly real. I offer to help in any way I can, but there's a helplessness that hangs heavily between Emily's words and mine. The police, already overwhelmed with similar cases, take down the report with a practiced, somber efficiency. They ask routine questions. When was she last seen? Was she acting differently? Did she mention going anywhere? But we both know these are questions with no satisfying answers. I visit Sarah's apartment, a place once filled with warmth and laughter, now silent and haunting. Her things are just as she left them, a book half open on the couch, a cup sitting in the sink, a calendar marked with plans that would never come to fruition. In the days that follow, I find myself walking the streets, scanning the faces of strangers, half expecting, half hoping to see her among them. But the streets are mostly empty. The city, a shell of its former self, as fear keeps people barricaded in their homes. The disappearances had been a terrifying mystery, a source of global fear and speculation. But with Sarah gone, they morph into something far more harrowing. A personal tragedy, a constant gnawing ache of loss and uncertainty. Each new report of a disappearance is no longer just another number in a growing statistic. It's a reminder of Sarah, of the gaping hole her absence has left in my life. The reality that anyone, at any time, could simply cease to exist without warning or reason is a burden that weighs heavily on me. It strips away the veneer of normalcy that I had been clinging to and leaves me with a profound sense of vulnerability. The world has changed, irrevocably and terrifyingly. And with Sarah's disappearance, so have I. One day the revelation strikes like a bolt from the blue, shattering the fragile semblance of normalcy that we had been trying to maintain. It comes in the form of a cache of documents leaked online by an anonymous whistleblower. The files spread across the internet, shared on social media, dissected by news outlets, and debated in urgent tones in coffee shops and living rooms. I come across the leaked documents one evening, my attention captured by the bold headline on a news website. Whistleblower reveals truth behind global disappearances. Alien abductions confirmed. Skeptical but intrigued, I click on the link. The documents contain classified government communications, scientific reports and blurry photographs. They paint a chilling picture. According to the reports, what the world has been witnessing is not the result of any human action. They are, as the rumours have speculated, the result of extraterrestrial activity, abductions carried out with technology far beyond our understanding. One report details the analysis of a strange metallic residue found at several disappearance sites. Another includes interviews with several high-ranking military officials who speak of unidentified aerial phenomena that can manoeuvre in ways impossible for any known aircraft. The photographs, though grainy, are perhaps the most damning evidence. They show silhouettes of strange, human-like figures, and in some, what appear to be alien crafts hovering in the sky. The world reacts with a volatile combination of fear and anger. Fear, because the evidence confirms our worst nightmares, that we are not alone in the universe, 
and that our visitors are far from friendly. Anger, because the documents suggest that certain government entities have been aware of these abductions for some time and have kept it hidden from the public. Protests erupt in major cities with people demanding answers and action from their governments. Online forums and social media platforms become hotbeds of conspiracy theories and calls for mobilization against the alien threat. The term alien is no longer the stuff of science fiction. It has become a somber reality, a part of our daily lexicon. In the midst of this turmoil, I find myself sitting at my computer, scrolling through the documents, each page deepening the sense of dread in the pit of my stomach. The world I knew, the reality I lived in, has been irrevocably altered. We are up against an extraterrestrial intelligence that has targeted us for reasons unknown. The revelation does not bring comfort or clarity. Instead, it opens a Pandora's box of questions and fears. What do these beings want with us? Why are they taking people? And most importantly, how do we fight an enemy whose existence we're only just beginning to understand? In the wake of the whistleblower's revelations, a shift occurs in the collective mindset of the community. If our governments can't or won't protect us, we reason, then we must take matters into our own hands. It's in this spirit of defiance and survival that community watch groups begin to form. I join one such group in my neighborhood. It's a motley crew. Neighbors I've only exchanged polite nods with, local business owners, and a few faces I recognize from the nearby college. We meet in the community center. The first few meetings are a jumble of ideas and concerns. Everyone has a theory, a suggestion, a strategy they've picked up from the internet or the local news. But as the days pass, we start to organize ourselves more effectively. We split into teams, assign shifts, and establish routes for patrolling the neighborhood. I find myself volunteering for the night shift. There's something about the stillness of the night that makes the threat feel more tangible, more imminent. Armed with flashlights, walkie-talkies, and an unwavering sense of vigilance, we walk the streets in pairs, our eyes scanning the shadows for any sign of unusual activity. Patrolling the neighborhood at night is a surreal experience. Streets that were once familiar now seem alien, charged with a potential danger that lurks in every unlit alley or behind each row of silent houses. We're not just looking out for ourselves or our families. We're guarding the entire community, a responsibility that weighs heavily on us all. Every rustle of leaves, every flicker of movement sets us on edge. We're civilians, untrained in combat or crisis management. Yet here we are, standing on the front line of an invisible war. Our walkie-talkies crackle with constant updates, sightings of strange lights in the sky, unexplained noises, doors found inexplicably open. Most turn out to be false alarms, but each call heightens our tension, our anticipation of a confrontation we are both dreading and expecting. As the nights roll into weeks, a sense of camaraderie forms among us. We share coffee and stories during our shifts, offer words of encouragement and look out for each other. We're no longer just neighbors. We're comrades in arms, united by a common goal, to protect our community from a threat the likes of which we've never faced before. 
Despite our efforts, the disappearances continue, both in our city and across the globe. Each new case is a blow to our morale. But we persevere, driven by the hope that our vigilance might save someone, that we might catch a glimpse of these mysterious abductors and learn something that could turn the tide in this unprecedented conflict. It's a chilly Thursday night, the kind where the air feels dense and every sound seems amplified. My patrol partner, Mike, a retired police officer and I are halfway through our shift. We've developed a routine over the weeks, a silent understanding and a shared vigilance. The streets are quiet, with only the occasional rustle of windswept leaves breaking the silence. As we turn down a familiar street, a sudden movement in the periphery of my vision stops me dead in my tracks. At first, I think it's just a trick of light or a stray animal, but then I see them clearly. Figures, about four or five, standing at the far end of the street. They're unlike any people I've ever seen. Towering, their limbs extended in a manner that challenges the typical human proportions. Mike spots them too. He reaches for his walkie-talkie, but I gesture for silence, my heart pounding in my chest. We edge closer, trying to make sense of what we're seeing. The figures stand perfectly still, as if they're waiting for something or someone. One of them turns towards us, and even from a distance I can feel the intensity of its gaze. Its eyes, large and unblinking, seem to reflect the streetlights in a creepy, unnatural way. Before we can react, the figures start to move. It's not a walk, but a glide, smooth and unnervingly silent. They're heading towards us, their movements synchronized in a way that's both fascinating and terrifying. Panic surges within me. We have to warn the others, I whisper to Mike, my voice barely audible. He nods, lifting his walkie-talkie to his mouth, but before he can speak, a bright light envelops the figures. It's blinding, like a flash of lightning, and for a moment, everything else fades into insignificance. We shield our eyes, and when the light dissipates as quickly as it appeared, the figures are gone. Vanished into thin air, leaving no trace behind except for the lingering sensation of their presence. We stand there, stunned and disoriented, trying to process what just happened. It's the confirmation we've dreaded and hoped for, Proof that the beings responsible for the disappearances are real, and they're here, among us. Mike finally speaks into the walkie-talkie, his voice shaking. Contact. We had contact, he stutters out the words. The line crackles as the rest of the patrol team responds, their voices filled with disbelief and fear. The encounter, brief as it was, changes everything. It's no longer about sightings or theories, We've come face to face with the unknown, and the reality is more terrifying than we could have imagined. The encounter with the alien beings galvanizes our community. The reality of the situation is undeniable, and the need for action is urgent. Meetings are convened across the city, the nation, and, as we later learn, around the world. The fight against these extraterrestrial abductors has become a unifying cause transcending all previous divisions. Our local group transforms overnight. The community center becomes our war room. Maps of the neighborhood are spread across tables, dotted with pins and markers, indicating sighting locations and patterns. Every member brings something to the table. 
the retired mechanics work on fortifying vehicles, tech-savvy teenagers rig up surveillance systems, and everyone else contributes in whatever way they can. We start to gather weapons, anything that could be of use. Baseball bats, crowbars, and even kitchen knives are collected. Some of the more resourceful members modify these into more effective tools, adding weight to bats or sharpening the edges of metal bars. It's primitive, but it's all we have. Parallel to our grassroots mobilization, an unprecedented global response is unfolding. Governments now openly acknowledge the threat. A sense of urgency cuts through the usual bureaucratic red tape, leading to a rare unity among nations. Military strategists, scientists and leaders come together, pooling their resources and knowledge to form a cohesive plan. The global strategy, as it's relayed through media, is twofold. Defence and research. Every city becomes a fortress, with curfews and patrols to protect citizens. The skies are monitored relentlessly, with every country contributing to a global surveillance network aimed at tracking the alien crafts. On the research front, captured alien technology and the beings themselves, when available, are studied in top-secret facilities. The goal is to understand their technology, their biology, and, most importantly, their weaknesses. Despite the scale of these efforts, there's an undercurrent of desperation. Time is against us. Every day, more people disappear, and with each abduction, the resolve to fight back grows stronger. It's a race against an unknown deadline, and the stakes couldn't be higher. In our community, drills become a regular part of life. We rehearse various scenarios, what to do if we encounter an alien being, how to evacuate if an attack occurs, and how to communicate and regroup in case of emergency. Every member, young and old, participates. It's no longer about waiting to be saved. It's about being ready to fight. The world has changed irrevocably. Across the globe, from the smallest towns to the largest cities, a unified front forms against a common enemy. The first skirmish occurs unexpectedly. It happens in Paris, and through the power of modern technology, the world becomes a witness. It starts with an emergency alert on social media, a live stream from a resident in the Montmartre district. The video is shaky, the scene chaotic. People are running, their screams piercing through the night. The camera pans up, and there they are. The alien beings descending from a low hovering craft, moving with an eerie, unnatural grace. The residents of Montmartre, like us, had been preparing, though nothing could fully prepare anyone for the reality of the confrontation. Armed with whatever they could find, pipes, bats, even chairs from nearby cafes, they engage the beings. The fight is nothing like what you'd see in a Hollywood movie. It's desperate, frantic. The aliens move swiftly, their limbs bending in ways that defy human anatomy. But the people of Paris are undeterred. They swarm around the aliens, attacking from all sides, driven by fear, anger, and the primal instinct to protect their home. One alien is cornered against a wall. A man lunges forward with a spear, and to the shock of everyone it pierces the creature's flesh. A black, viscous fluid, its blood perhaps, spills onto the cobblestone street. 
a cheer erupts from the crowd. The beings can be hurt. They can be fought. The aliens retaliate with ferocity. Their movements are swift and precise, their strength seemingly beyond that of a human. But the people of Montmartre don't back down. They fight with the ferocity of those who have nothing left to lose. The skirmish is over in a matter of minutes. The aliens retreat, their craft ascending rapidly into the sky. The camera pans over the aftermath. The street is littered with debris, the wounded are being tended to, and the air is filled with emotions, pain, fear, but also triumph. The video goes viral, streamed live to millions around the world. It becomes a rallying cry, a demonstration of our ability to fight back. In community centers, in living rooms, in government halls, people watch and re-watch the footage, analyzing every detail, learning from the encounter. The first skirmish in Paris teaches us valuable lessons. We learn about the aliens' physical capabilities and weaknesses. We see the effectiveness of improvisation and bravery against a seemingly superior foe. But perhaps most importantly, we learn that we are not powerless. We can fight back. We can defend ourselves. The skirmish in Paris ignites a spark that spreads rapidly across the globe. It becomes clear that waiting defensively for the next abduction or sighting is no longer a viable strategy. In response, a series of coordinated strikes are planned, marking a shift from a defensive to an offensive stance in this unprecedented conflict. These aren't traditional military operations. Given the elusive nature of our enemy, conventional tactics prove inadequate. Instead, the world resorts to guerrilla warfare, leveraging local knowledge, adaptability, and sheer willpower to confront the alien threat. I participate in one such strike, organized by our local group. The plan is simple yet audacious, to ambush an alien patrol, using a combination of bait and improvised traps. The atmosphere among the group is tense. We're ordinary people, not soldiers, but the stakes are too high for hesitation. In cities and towns everywhere, similar scenes unfold. Small, agile teams take to the streets, armed with whatever weapons they can muster. The strategy is to hit fast, hit hard, and retreat before the enemy can regroup. It's a high-risk approach, but it's our best chance at inflicting damage and gathering intelligence. In a small town in Brazil, a group lures an alien scout into a pre-rigged warehouse filled with explosive traps. In a remote village in India, locals use the dense forest to their advantage, launching hit-and-run attacks against a patrolling alien unit. From the sprawling urban landscapes of New York and Tokyo to the quiet streets of rural communities, humanity fights back in a patchwork of resistance. Communication is key. The internet becomes an invaluable tool for sharing tactics and learning from each strike's successes and failures. Social media platforms now buzz with real-time updates on engagements, tips on alien weaknesses, and DIY weapon designs. Despite our efforts, we are painfully aware of our disadvantages. The aliens possess technology far beyond ours, their abilities and weaponry superior in every aspect. We suffer losses, each one a devastating blow to our morale and resources. But with each engagement, we learn and adapt. Our enemy is no longer an abstract horror lurking in the shadows. 
They're tangible, a force that can be confronted and fought. And though we're outmatched in terms of firepower and technology, we're not outwilled. This struggle has united humanity in a way few things ever could. The operation to capture an alien being is meticulously planned, born out of a desperate need for answers and a breakthrough in this seemingly unwinnable war. Our group, having learned from past encounters and coordinated strikes, prepares for what is undoubtedly our most daring and dangerous mission yet. The plan is to ambush an alien patrol, using a combination of decoys and a net trap rigged with electroshock capabilities, designed to immobilize without causing lethal damage. We choose an abandoned factory on the outskirts of the city for the operation, a place with multiple entry and exit points, ideal for a quick escape. The night of the operation is tense. We position ourselves strategically, each of us assigned a specific role. I'm one of the spotters, equipped with night vision binoculars perched on a high vantage point. The wait feels interminable, every minute stretching out as we watch and listen for any sign of our target. Then, just when the tension seems unbearable, a flicker of movement catches my eye. Contact, I whisper into my walkie-talkie, my voice steady despite the adrenaline coursing through my veins. The alien, slender and taller than any human, moves with a fluid grace that's almost hypnotic. It approaches cautiously, surveying its surroundings with an air of intelligence and curiosity. As it reaches the center of the factory floor, the trap is sprung. The net, nearly invisible in the dim light, envelops the alien in a swift, fluid motion. A jolt of electricity courses through the net, and the alien convulses before collapsing, immobilized, but still alive. The moments that follow are a blur. We rush in, our rehearsed moves executed with precision. The alien is bound and sedated, a specially formulated tranquilizer that one of our members, a veterinarian, had prepared, hoping it would be effective. As we transport the creature to our lab, a sense of fear permeates the group. The alien is unlike any life form we've ever seen. Its skin is a pale, radiant color. The limbs are long and jointed in unexpected places, and its face, devoid of any human features, is dominated by large, opaque eyes. In the lab, we observe the creature with fascination. Its biology is baffling. Every discovery raises more questions than answers. How does it breathe? How does it see? What is its purpose here? We need to learn as much as we can, as quickly as we can. The alien, though a captive, represents a ticking clock. We are aware that its absence will not go unnoticed by its kind, and that our actions could have unforeseen consequences. The interrogation of the captured alien is approached with scientific curiosity and dire necessity. Initially, our attempts at communication are met with silence. The creature sits motionless in the secured room its large, unblinking eyes observing us with what feels like curiosity and indifference. The team tries various methods, sign language, pictograms, basic sounds, even trying to play recordings of different Earth languages. Nothing elicits a response. The alien's impassive demeanor makes it impossible to gauge if it's a matter of misunderstanding or willful silence. 
After hours of futile attempts, a breakthrough occurs when one of our members, out of sheer frustration, mutters a string of words in English. To our astonishment, the creature's head tilts slightly, its eyes focusing more intently. Encouraged, we repeat the words, and this time, the alien responds. Its voice, when it first speaks, sends a shiver down my spine. It's rough, guttural, but unmistakably articulate. Why? It asks, the words strained as if its vocal cords are not designed for human speech. The room erupts into a frenzy of activity. We scramble to record the interaction, while simultaneously bombarding it with questions. Its responses are brief, often single words or fragmented sentences, but each one is a revelation. We learn that they are indeed from another world, a concept that still seems surreal, even as the words come from the alien's mouth. Their technology, it explains in broken phrases, allows them to traverse vast cosmic distances, a technology they guard jealously. The most chilling revelation comes when we ask about the abductions. The alien hesitates, its eyes narrowing. Harvest, it finally says. It refuses to elaborate further, despite our pressing questions. Harvest for what? We ask. But the alien falls silent, retreating back into its impenetrable shell of non-communication. The interrogation hits a wall, leaving us with more questions than answers. The word harvest sends ripples of fear and speculation through our group. The implications are terrifying. Humans being taken for some unknown purpose, akin to crops being reaped by a farmer. It paints a grim picture of our place in this encounter not as equals, but as resources to be exploited. The interrogation session ends with the alien still shrouded in mystery. Its willingness to communicate, even in a limited capacity, gives us hope that further interaction might yield more information. The revelation of harvest resonates through our ranks. We know now that our fight is for the very essence of our humanity. The decision is made to launch a counterattack a massive, coordinated effort to strike at the heart of the alien presence on Earth. It's a gamble, but we are driven by the desperate hope of stopping the abductions and rescuing those already taken. The plan is ambitious. Using the information gleaned from the captured alien and the patterns observed in their operations, we identify several key locations around the globe that appear to be focal points for their activity. These sites, we believe, are where the aliens launch their abduction raids, and possibly where they hold those they have taken. Our group, along with countless others worldwide, begins intense preparations. We gather our weapons, reinforce our defences, and go over the plan repeatedly. Every member knows their role, the importance of each action in this intricate dance of attack and retreat. The counterattack is set to launch simultaneously in multiple locations at a predetermined time. In the hours leading up to the operation, we go through our strategies and try to steel ourselves for what is to come. As zero hour approaches, we take our positions. I am with a strike team, tasked with infiltrating one of the suspected alien hubs in the city. The streets are quiet as we move towards our target the silence amplifying the pounding of my heart. The attack begins with a coordinated strike on the alien crafts. 
Using stolen alien technology and weapons developed from the research of the captured being, our forces engage the enemy in the skies. The night erupts into chaos, the sound of battle filling the air. On the ground, our team breaches the facility. Inside, we are met with a scene from a nightmare. Strange machinery hums and throbs with alien energy, and we catch glimpses of people, some unconscious, others in a trance-like state, held in bizarre contraptions. The fight is intense. The alien beings, caught off guard, retaliate with ferocious power. But we have the advantage of surprise on our side. We push forward, disabling the alien equipment, liberating the captives, and engaging the enemy in close quarters combat. It's a battle on two fronts, in the air and on the ground. The skies are alight with explosions and strange lights as our forces clash with the alien crafts. On the ground, every corridor and chamber of the facility becomes a battleground. The cost is high. We lose good people, brave souls who sacrifice themselves for the greater cause. But inch by painstaking inch, we gain ground. The facility is secured, the captives freed, and the alien presence repelled. As dawn breaks, the extent of our victory becomes clear. Similar reports come in from around the world. Many of the alien hubs have been destroyed or captured, their operations disrupted. It's a significant blow to the enemy, a turning point in the war. The success of the counterattack emboldens us, fueling a newfound sense of confidence and purpose. Intelligence gathered during the strikes reveals the location of what we believe to be the alien command ship. It's a massive structure, hovering in low orbit, seemingly coordinating the invasion and abductions. The decision is made to launch a final, all-out assault on this command center, a move that, if successful, could end the alien threat once and for all. The plan for the final assault is complex. It requires precise coordination between ground forces and a fleet of aircraft retrofitted with alien technology captured in previous raids. The world watches, holding its breath as the operation begins. I am part of the ground team, our objective to secure the alien landing sites and prevent any reinforcements from joining the battle in orbit. The night is ablaze with activity. As we advance, the ground trembles under the might of the conflict unfolding above. The sky is a scene of chaos. Human and alien craft dance a deadly ballet, weaving and darting between beams of light and explosive ordnance. The alien command ship looms large, a sinister presence that overshadows the battle. On the ground, the fight is just as fierce. Alien soldiers, unlike any we've encountered before, emerge to defend their positions. They are larger, more formidable, but we are driven by the knowledge that this might be our only chance to end the nightmare. Every step forward is hard won. We move through the ruins of our cities, now battlegrounds, fighting off alien attackers with a combination of guerrilla tactics and sheer grit. The air is filled with the sound of gunfire, the roar of engines and the cries of the fallen. Then, a pivotal moment arrives. A squadron of our bravest pilots, flying the most heavily armed crafts, breaches the defences of the command ship. What follows is a desperate struggle, 
a fight that seems to defy the laws of physics and possibility. The world holds its breath as reports of the battle filter down. Then, a cheer erupts across the globe. The command ship has been destroyed. In a colossal explosion that lights up the sky, the alien stronghold disintegrates, raining debris across the atmosphere. In the wake of the explosion, a sudden calm descends. As if a switch has been flipped, the alien forces on the ground falter, their coordination and commitment crumbling without their command. We seize the advantage, pushing back with vigour until the last of the invaders are defeated or retreat. In the days that follow, it becomes clear that the destruction of the command ship was the turning point we had hoped for. Reports from around the world confirm a rapid cessation of hostilities. The alien crafts, those that haven't retreated or been destroyed, remain motionless, adrift in the skies. The abductions, the terror that had gripped the world for so long, stop abruptly. The aftermath of the final assault is a fusion of jubilation and solemn reflection. Cities hold impromptu victory parades, people hugging and crying in the streets, united in their relief and shared trauma. But the celebrations are tempered by the cost at which this victory came. Memorials spring up in every corner of the globe, honouring those who fell in the fight against the invaders. In the weeks following the assault, the world begins the arduous process of recovery and rebuilding. The alien technology, now in our hands, opens up new possibilities. Scientists and engineers work to understand and adapt this technology for the benefit of humanity. The political landscape changes as well. The shared experience of fighting a common enemy has forged new alliances and a sense of global community previously thought impossible. Governments work together to establish protocols for future extraterrestrial encounters, and a new international defence organisation is formed. For those of us on the front lines, the end of the war brings complex emotions. Relief and pride are predominant, but there's also a sense of loss and disorientation. We had become so accustomed to the daily struggle for survival that the sudden return to normalcy feels jarring. In quiet moments, I find myself gazing up at the stars, wondering about the beings who came from there. Why did they come? What was their purpose? And most importantly, are they truly gone, or is this just a temporary reprieve? The alien that we had captured is now a subject of intense study, a potential key to unlocking these mysteries. The atmosphere in the interrogation room is one of subdued celebration. The air is still tinged with disbelief, but it's slowly being overtaken by a sense of victory. We had faced an unimaginable enemy, and against all odds, prevailed. The room is filled with key members of our resistance, scientists, military leaders, and a few of us who had been on the front lines from the start. I stand at the back, observing the captured alien that had been our source of invaluable intelligence. It sits in its containment unit, a being from another world that no longer seems as menacing as it once did. Its eyes, which had always held an unreadable expression, now seem to bear a glint of something different. Is it resignation? Defeat? I can't quite place it. Then, as if sensing my gaze, the alien turns its head towards me. Our eyes meet, and for a moment, 
there's a silent exchange, an unspoken acknowledgement of the war just ended. A small, unsettling smile, or at least what I perceive as a smile, curls the edges of its mouth. You think you've won, it says, its voice as unnerving as ever. The room falls quiet, every conversation ceasing as its words echo through the space. The magnitude of its statement sinks in slowly. What do you mean? asks one of the military leaders, his tone showing suspicion and curiosity. The alien smirk widens. This was just a test. A preliminary assessment. Your planet, your species, has been under observation, evaluated for potential integration. A chill runs down my spine. Integration into what? I find myself asking, my voice barely above a whisper. The alien's eyes flicker with a cold, calculating intelligence. A larger collective. Our empire spans galaxies, and your world is a candidate for assimilation. The real invasion has yet to begin. The room erupts into various reactions. Disbelief, fear, anger. Had our struggle, our sacrifices, been merely part of some cosmic evaluation? Were we just pawns in a larger, more terrifying game? The scientists and military personnel begin to bombard the alien with questions, but it falls silent, its message delivered. The mood in the room shifts from celebration to a creeping sense of dread. In the days and weeks that follow, the alien's ominous warning spreads like a dark cloud over our hard-won victory. Governments and organizations worldwide are put on high alert, and efforts are redoubled to prepare for a potential larger-scale invasion. The alien is interrogated relentlessly, but it reveals nothing more. Its smirk a constant indication of the possible storm on the horizon. The revelation forces us to reassess our place in the universe. Our victory against the initial invasion now feels like a mere reprieve in a much larger, more daunting conflict. The possibility of facing an empire that spans galaxies is a sobering thought one that humbles and terrifies in equal measure. As I stand under the night sky, looking up at the stars, the universe no longer seems like a vast expanse of exploration and wonder, but a landscape of unknown threats and formidable adversaries.